0: people are reaching for control. And in large systems, control isn't really available to us. We're finally, I feel like, starting to find things that actually work to bring organizations closer to reliability. I feel like we have to fail more. We have to practice in failure, because if we don't, we don't develop the abilities and the muscles and the skills and the reflexes. We also don't discover where we're brittle.
1: Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Speeds. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or Olicast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production
2: systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Olicast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Olicast.
0: I've been at Blameless for about six months. And when I showed up, I'm the first SRE you know, full-time. And the team had built quite a lot of software with logging. And um, there were some metrics here and there. But there was a lot of time spent in incidents where we would be trying to figure out what's going on. And there were a lot of incidents in the past where we didn't figure out what happened. And so I had a lot of work to do in kind of reinventing the SRE program and other things around, but kept pointing out and saying, hey, we don't have enough observability in this system Mm -hmm. until it came to a head. And at one point, we had an incident with a customer where the customer very clearly said to us, we are very unhappy with this behavior. And that was the opportunity for me to go to leadership and say, hey, we need to pull back some feature velocity and use it to deeply invest in observability because we can't even tell people what is going on Right. And so if we can't solve that problem, we're going to be continually in incident hell and not making forward progress.
1: You can't even understand it for yourselves. Mm -hmm. Like that's the first step, right? Is understanding it before you can even help to like explain it to someone else or fix it or anything. And like, we see this so often where people are, they want to move so fast and they're just like sprinting off in all different directions and they can't see what the fuck they're even doing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Amy, this sounds like a great time to introduce yourself.
0: Sure, yeah. So, I mean, me, Toby, I've been doing what we call SRE since about 1999. Before it was SRE. Before that it was SRE, was- uh, before DevOps. And so, you know, starting with things like monitoring projects, doing Unix stuff, writing Perl. But, you know, over that, that 20 years, is I've come to these places of observability and SLOs and, and where we are in modern SRE because we're finally, I feel like, starting to find things that actually work to bring organizations closer to reliability. Whereas that first 15, 18 years really was was a just, lot of progress. <laughs> yeah, like a whole lot of shoveling shit. And and I, where you know I want to go and build something nice and I'm too busy cleaning out the barn.
2: Yeah. I find it interesting that like at blameless, it's you're facing customers without like being able to explain what's going on when a lot of the purpose of the blameless tool is to help with incident review by my understanding. yeah. And so how did that play out?
0: Uh, that has been my primary tool for convincing people that we need to do this investment. Mm. I think part of it is me bringing my experience and being in and out of the trenches and then bringing that concept and saying, hey, our audience, our customers, have a higher expectation than you're going to get at a consumer company or a, you know, even maybe some of the monitoring companies, right? Because our tool primarily gets used When things are already going wrong for someone. And so the reliability of our tool is absolutely a paramount feature of it. And so that's really what most of my work has been in my time at Blameless has been. Our number one feature is reliability because our audience is people who care about reliability.
1: Mm. You said you've been doing this since 99. And it feels to me like we're starting to reach the point as an industry where we have some institutional memory. And you see this with, you know, young companies, like every team, like we, we all kind of have to learn this stuff over and over, but it always seems like the right thing to do is to move fast and to just do something, right? It always seems like the right thing to do is just, you know, get it out the door. And you kind of have to see that fail <laughs> a few times before you can kind of retrain yourself to look for different things in that cycle and pause at different places. You know, it's like reaching for a different kind of certainty, reaching for a different kind of comfort. Maybe with what's going on.
0: I have a simpler view that's a little less pleasant, which is people are reaching for control. And in large systems and the systems we run today, control isn't really available to us.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But like the urge to like reach for control, like it kind of has to be retrained. Like we kind of have to like let our rational brain take over and go, okay. I did this 10 times <laughs> every time I reached for control. Now what's really happening, you know, and what can I really expect out of this? And how can I act in a way that will produce the best outcome?
2: It's definitely like an entire sort of paradigm shift. And it, it's something that I've been learning about. Actually, thanks to you, Amy, for introducing me to a lot of like this learning from incidents community and, and resilience engineering communities and things like that. And the concept of resilience systems over like, strong but brittle systems where, you know, if you solve for your current state and things change, you know, that's what causes failure modes. You have these emergent failure modes.
1: It's not about making systems that don't fail. It's about making systems that can fail a lot (laughs) and still like serve their core purpose of like serving the customer.
2: Exactly, where nobody notices that your your server fell over or a hundred servers fell over if you're at that scale.
0: You know, my, my training early in my life was I was a bad nerd and then went to college to be a music educator. And obviously, that's not what I ended up doing. But all through that, there, there's a common phrase that gets said a lot is practice makes perfect or perfect practice makes perfect. And I feel like that what Charity was saying about we have to fail more. We have to practice in failure. Because if we don't, we don't develop the abilities and the muscles and the skills and the and the, the reflexes mm-hmm. that allow us to respond to those. And then we also okay. don't discover where we're brittle. And so we don't really have a choice. I mean, there was that brief moment when Amazon Web Services was first starting to take root when it was so bad, it failed so much that we kind of built these muscles because we had to, because instances would just die all the time. And then it got good. And then, then things started getting more brittle again. At least that's what I saw. Yeah. And so it was, again, we, we, we fell out of practice. We spent too much time on the couch. And now we have starting to develop actual discipline, like chaos engineering, that will actually help us exercise our abilities.
1: Yeah. It's about retraining ourselves to embrace this, you know, and to feel... And and to be kind, I've always been excited when things fail. I'm like, Mm. that's when I click into my happiest self. I'm just like, oh my god, everything's fucked. This is amazing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I feel like you can practice that too. You can do that intentionally. You can just go, this is exciting. This is rare. This is this is one of the moments where, like, I don't know, I feel most alive when things are just completely on fire. And I think that like we underestimate our own ability to teach ourselves to react in different ways to situations. Yeah. <laughs> Right, like I think that there's something to be said for just like you know, consciously going, okay, I'm going to decide to react in a different way the next time something like this happens. And it's stupid and scary and s- annoying to me how much this mirror is becoming an adult. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because like becoming an adult is about, you know, what do the psychologists call it? They, they call it mastering your your executive brain, right? Like making the meta brain drive more mm-hmm. so that you're not just reacting and existing in a space of like id, mm-hmm. but you are noticing your reactions, paying attention to them, identifying them, communicating them and making decisions about how to act. They're consistent with your long-term
0: goals. Right. But not everybody's good at that. Oh, no. And there's an intersection with, with neurodivergence there, which mm-hmm. I, I would be surprised if any of the three of us turned out to be normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my own experience is that you know I struggled through school with ADHD, undiagnosed, unmedicated, all that. And I still am because I I developed skills to cope with it. But I feel like part of the trajectory of my career was that I I landed in operations early and I got to bring it to bear as a skill as opposed to a handicap. Yeah. And I feel like that's starting to become something that more people are like these skills that we developed. Yeah. Neurodivergence, I'm not going to claim you two are without.
1: No, absolutely. Like I remember hmm. trying to work as a software engineer and it was just so tedious the idea that I would know what code I was supposed to write, like, days, weeks in the future, like, I just lost all interest in computers. Mm-hmm. And i have gravitated towards ops because, you know, and I was diagnosed with ADHD just last year, and everyone in my life was like, oh, of course. Duh.
2: <laughs> Duh. You know, and I'm just like, what are you talking
1: about? It had never occurred to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but, you know, yeah, you're right. I think it's really interesting, and it's something, it's a theme that comes up a lot, and like, I... I appreciate sort of the metaphor of like adulthood or or, um, we were hearing from Donna uh, launched directly today, uh, uh, sorry from home about like parenting and DevOps and how like you're just improvising all the time. You have no idea what you're doing. And I feel like, you know, that's sort of the theme of adulthood is we're all, you know, we reach this level and, and we're all, we don't know what we're doing, but you can get better at improvising. Like it's a skill that you can develop. And that was something that about like incident response that I'm like, learning now that I'm actually like in teams that care about incident response and training it is that it is a skill that you can learn you can learn incident response the way you, you can learn to be an EMT yeah
1: I'm curious to hear Amy about the systems that you have at boyless like I guess I'm a little surprised it in my mental model like it's not the kind of uh, company where you'd have like a lot of like production s- systems that are you know fragile or, or they need to be like, a lot. Like, what do you have on the back end there?
0: It's a microservice architecture. Mm-hmm. And it's, the older stuff is based on a RPC system called Namico that was built in Python and uses RabbitMQ for its message bus.
1: Oh, say no more.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I knew that when I joined and, and there's work in progress to eradicate it. <laughs> but yeah, RPC over RabbitMQ is exactly as bad as it sounds.
1: Yeah, totally. I will say uh, for queuing things, not to like be, you know, marketing our own shit too much, but like uh, one of the only ways that I've found to get a handle on those problems is with something like Honeycomb where you can can track everything that's in flight, right? Where you can Mm -hmm. sum up like all of the, you know, or or even just like what percentage of in-flight workers are being used by, you know, Breakdown by customer, breakdown by you know input. Um, without something like that, like it's just impossible. I being a DBA without that stuff. Oh
0: my gosh! <laughs> like
1: before and after was like you know it. Being able to just say like okay, like which of our customers is consuming most of the lock time in this table? Just like really basic, straightforward questions like that. It yeah. is insane to me that as an industry we have gotten this far without having it.
0: Yeah. And in the case of this architecture, right, what Mm -hmm. I believe happened, you know, it's all kind of rumors and legends
1: Mm -hmm.
0: is, you know, somebody really loved this piece of software and and felt that it was the right choice at the time. Mm -hmm. Of course they did. And they were the lead developer. And so they charged it and they build a ton of software on it. You know, so in a a way, it's a very successful system. We have a successful business built on it. Yes you have survived long enough to hate yourselves. And, and like now, <laughs> now, now the trick is, is turning what we've learned from that experience into what we're calling our multi-tenant re-architecture. Yeah. Which is switching from, we're, we continue with microservices and kind of leaning heavily on the microservice architecture to get out of that RPC system, you know, it, but, but that's the other thing that's happening right now is, is we're rewriting a huge chunk of our architecture.
1: Oh boy. So the purse story in a nutshell was, you know, we, wrote this very popular mobile backend as a service using Ruby and Rails. So you've got this pool of unicorn workers that can have one process per request at each point in time. And we at the time we got acquired by Facebook, I think we had 60,000 mobile apps all contending for those resources. Oh, gosh. And around the time I left, we had over a million, mm. right? So you can see the problems here. Mm. Like, as we start spinning up more and more databases behind this fixed pool of workers, you know, and it doesn't matter how big you make the pool of workers. We're running it, like... 10 or 20% usage steady state under normal circumstances, Mm -hmm. but it can spike to many hundreds of times that amount just if a single backend gets a little bit slow. Mm. And then every single worker will just be waiting on that database to return its query or that Redis instance to return its, you know. and, And once you have like tens of those databases, pretty much something is always slow. So we had to like, bite the bullet and go, okay, we are going to need to do a full rewrite of our API in a threaded language, and we chose Go, and yeah, it was painful. It was painful, but like I genuinely don't know how people do it without something like Honeycomb.
2: How do you make that decision, and how do you get buy-in for a rewrite or re-architecting the entire system? It's kind of like what Benjamin Franklin said about
1: Americans that we always do the right thing after exhausting all other possible options.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how it goes, very frequently. Yeah. Because those rewrites that happen without that are often worse.
2: Mm. Well, right? that's the thing. Guess- like, if there's any other option, you should take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just that the hero working nights and weekends to to write it all from the ground it's up. It's not yeah. about
1: that. It's about the longer your software's been around, the more stable it is. The more it's known, the more it's boring. And boring software is what powers the world, right? Mm-hmm. I know we're all singing the same same song here, but like, <laughs> but like having to take your more or less you know stable three or four year old API and rewrite a new one. Not only that, but like the impedance mismatch, Ruby and its implicit everything. It's just going to guess at all your types, right? And then you try to map that to go and it's going to be like, nope, 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 nope. And and all of the mobile apps out there in the wild, which aren't happening on a regular release schedule, they're like stuck in 2002 when it comes to like releasing, right? They're like, once
0: or twice a year, we're going to do all or nothing, right? And, and you have to be bug compatible with that software.
1: Bug mm-hmm. compatible is exactly the word I would use. Yeah, it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as right. Mm-hmm. What is right is whatever mistakes you made before. <laughs> and you just ha- so we we did a bunch of contortions. Like this was the most painful thing that I've ever been through. And we finally settled on a cadence that was basically we wrote this little thin shim thing that would like fork traffic, right? right? And so we would put that on one of the app workers and it would fork the traffic and it would send it to a a stable one and a go one for that endpoint mm-hmm. and it would return and diff the results that it had gotten and log any differences to a file. And every morning someone would come in and check that file, see which bugs we had, which edge cases we hadn't caught, right? So those were the easy ones. Those were the read endpoints.
0: So you're kind of approximating a solution with that, yeah. right? Like you're it's almost like how ML kind of guesses at things by by kind of wiggling into the right spot. It's purely, it's just like, well, is is the end user going to think this is a bug? Then we have to think this is a bug, right? Right.
1: And then like for the right endpoints, we actually had to like fork the database and like we daisy chained two of these so that we could it it worked. But this is why when I was leaving Facebook, I went, Holy fuck, I don't know how to live without the tooling that we had built around Scuba, because you literally have to be able to inspect down to every single request what is happening and what correlates, right? Mm. Like if you're dealing with metrics and aggregates... They're as good as
0: useless. Well, they, they tell you the shape of what's happening in the system, but they don't tell you what is actually happening in the system. They can't tell you anything about the reality at the pointy end where the work is happening.
1: Yeah. And like, I didn't understand all of the whys, right? All I knew was that it had been categorically different than all of the failed doing that I had tried before. And it took two, three, Years, I, I'm still going on explaining that experience. I'm still trying to explain it to myself and to the world. Just what is it that matters? Why
2: does it matter? And who does it matter to? I found it really interesting just coming into like learning about observability without, you know, decades of experience living with metrics and logs and stack traces as my debugging tools, where when I first was living in production systems I'm like why can't I answer the questions that I have with these dashboards in front of me you know exactly what we talk about at honeycomb right mm. and I'd get so frustrated it's like I just want to know what was happening at this point in time and then I learned like oh you can just record that uh, as like as in structured data and then go back and ask those questions and I'm like who wouldn't want to do that like and so it's been a very interesting perspective like you know, saying it like, of course we should store it this way. And then going and facing everyone who's like, well, we've had our, our, you know, quantiles for the last two decades. Like how. You get used to a
0: tool. I, I have a theory about who doesn't want that. It, it was me at a time and it was probably charity at a time where, you know, my kind of coming around observability and, and really understanding how the, the modern tracing world is is pushing the state of the art forward was the realization that, the gut instinct that I bring to the table as an experienced systems administrator, performance analyst, whatever, right, is, is, that, is that I've built that, that kind of knowledge graph inside of myself to be able to sit, to look at a huge wall of graphs, looking at the curves and looking at different pages and putting the information together in my head. Mm-hmm. And what I struggled with is people would keep saying like, Amy, can you please teach me how to do that? I really want to know how, because you always troubleshoot stuff. You get to the answer really fast. How do you do that? And the best answer I can say is like, well, you got to troubleshoot a lot of stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. It's intuitive. It's like pattern matching. Like we just, we learned it that way. And the feeling of power, like when you just, you can look at a graph and just go, it's Redis, you know? And everybody's Mm -hmm. like, how did you do that? It doesn't say Redis anywhere. And you're just like, aha, but I bet you I'm right. And you are like, that
2: godlike power. It It feels feels so so good. good. Yes. But it's not replicable. It's diagnosing based on these like peripheral symptoms. Well, it's an intuitive leap. It's an
1: intuitive leap based on the scar tissue of many past outages. I was
0: going to say a hard one intuitively, which is why I was reluctant to be like, well, what? I don't need these tools. I can already do Mm, this. But what the newer honeycomb and, and we're using Stackdriver right now, these tools bring that intuition. Mm-hmm. They democratize it. They make it available to all the engineers that maybe haven't don't work in ops and infrastructure and see how all the pieces are put together and where the wires and lines are. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, now these tools connect things for us. Yeah. So it's a cognitive assist. Now everyone can make those intuitive leaps at the speed that maybe Charity and I were doing it 10 years ago.
1: One of the things that I've come fairly recently to realize is key to this is that when you're giving software engineers tools, you need to give them tools that speak the language that they speak all day, Absolutely. which is endpoints and variables and functions and services. The languages that you and I speak are like, well, there's... Four or five different kinds of like memory. Like, which kind are you talking? Is it resident memory or is it shared memory? Is it virtual? (laughs) You know, like, 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 we're very good at translating from one to the other, Mm -hmm. and that's not an expectation that I think is reasonable (laughs) for for your for your average engineer. Because what they need to know is is each request able to execute, and if not, why not? And that's it. Like, they don't need to think about all the different kinds of memory. What they need to know is if they just shipped a change, did it triple the size of the memory usage? Like, that's useful information. Right, right. But the memory usage is really all that they need to know. <laughs>
0: There's a, an analogy that stuck in my head years ago. Is um, I don't remember where I read it. But it was about why in detective shows they always show the detective with the flashlight in a dark room shining a flashlight. And somebody gave a great explanation that said that, well, the neat thing about using a flashlight like that is it directs your focus into a smaller area. So you're more likely to notice details in that small area than if you're in a well-lit room trying to observe everything. Oh, and wow. So one of the things are, that these modern tools are doing is they're bringing our focus closer to the problem more quickly. Okay. And so it's, it is the flashlight in the dark that lets us kind of make those intuitive leaps and so now in a software engineer who maybe has a ton of context in programming languages and build tools and all of that stuff doesn't need all of that other context and infrastructure because they get spotlighted into where they are strongest, where they are going to notice the right things.
1: Yeah, they need to know the consequences of the changes that they have just made. Mm-hmm. You know, And I feel like I think that I get... Unfairly maligned sometimes for shitting all over metrics. <laughs> I believe that the metrics, the aggregates, the data dogs, the Prometheuses of the world, that is the right tool for the job if you're managing infrastructure. Hmm. It's an amazing tool. It's it's an amazing toolkit. It is what you need. You need to care about capacity planning. You need to care about in aggregate, am I doing my job? Is the infrastructure serving its purpose? What you don't give a shit about, you know, all the 500s that the software engineers are out there causing, you know, like you can't feel personally responsible for every one of them because they aren't all your fault, you know? Like, there's only so much you can do. And there's like this constant like debate or just like push-pull dynamic about like, should we care about the error rate or not? (laughs) Because we care about some errors, right? The ones that are caused by infrastructure.
0: Well, we should care about the error rates that our customers care about.
1: Well, yes, but, you know, from a perspective of responsibility, you know, like, I've been thinking about trying to, like, you know, draw the lines between, like, what does a tool like Honeycomb need to provide? And it is the information that software engineers need to know to course correct, to understand the code that they're putting out in the world. But then like infra teams, and most of my my people work for Amazon, right? But like they have a different need. They don't need to give a shit about my customers. Right. And I think that platform providers are the ones where, like, working as a platform provider at Parse is where this became a very crisp thing to me. It's like, mm. you are both the infrastructure provider and you're writing, you know, your own APIs and tools and stuff. And, like, it could be very difficult to tease apart are these 500s that we cause that are our fault or ones that our customers cause that we are enabling because we're a platform, mm. but it's not our
0: job to fix them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, where does that go? Right. Like, we've identified something that, that maybe is unexpected behavior. And kind of my specialty lately, I'm uh, you know trying to make this more about me is <laughs> is, is like what so we, so we discover these things happening in production, yeah, and very often still even in, in orgs that have SRE teams that have pretty strong software teams like where what I'm doing now is, but the information just kind of fell on the ground.
1: Right. When I say it's not our problem, it's their errors, the responsibility that I think we do have to them is to service enough information that they can be self-serving, that they can understand what they've done, that they can correct it, you know, that they can, I think that there's a pretty clear line of demarcation between the stuff that I can control and the stuff that I am providing that I can't control. I can't control how users are going to use it, right? I just Mm. need to I need to give them a good experience on my platform and I need to make it clear enough to them when they've done something wrong, when they've used my service wrong, I need to help them self-serve so that they can figure out how to fix that. Assuming so, I mean, they are other engineers.
0: But there's another side to that, right? Is is when we discover the, these conditions where, oh, the users are using the API wrong. And, and there's one, as you mentioned, uh, an avenue where we go and engage with our users, you know, DevRel, like Shelby and I do. And work with them to do it better. But there's also that information needs to go back to our product teams.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so when they're designing L2, v2 of, of the API or the next API, at least that information is available to make better decisions.
1: I think what I'm thinking of here specifically is, you know, people would use the Parse API and they would write these horrendous database queries, like the (laughs) worst database. Like they'd be doing something that seemed pretty legit, you know, through the API. And it would translate into, you know, five full table scans on, you know, um, hundreds of millions of rows, you know, just like five (laughs) times. Because why not? You know, and I think we never really got to the point where we had enough engineers or, or enough like sophisticated customers who who didn't want to just bang on it but I always wished that we had funneled up better information to them about about how those were translating mm-hmm. right how the the API was translating into MongoDB queries cuz it wasn't really their fault I d- couldn't really blame them they were just doing something reasonable with an algorithm, and it was spitting out this mm. incredible horseshit. And I felt like we could have held them to a higher standard if we had given them the tools to see why it was taking five minutes. You know,
0: have we broken that wall yet, though? Because I mean, if somebody goes and buys Honeycomb and implements it deeply in their stack, that's great for the people inside the firewall. But the customer still doesn't get that observability benefit. They don't
1: get that unless we surface that to them. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: You're absolutely
2: right. You're absolutely right. And this is, this is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I don't want our users, our customers, to have to like go and look at the code and how it, like our you know SDKs are implemented in order to understand like the best way to use it. Like that's a ridiculous standard to hold people to. And it's exactly like you're saying. Like it's meeting them in a place where they can get
0: the most out of the tool out of the service. It's treating engineers like people,
2: mm-hmm. not like
1: engineers.
0: Yeah. But well, I, I guess what I'm trying to edge towards is that at some point is, you know, we're we're all kind of working in a very SaaS world that's getting even more SaaS as we as the the idea that like things should be boring, we shouldn't be building crap that's not differentiating our business. Yeah. You know, And so there's more of this, but now we're yeah. entering the situation where if we got 20 services in our infrastructure and 10 of them are SaaS, yeah. how do we tie that all together? I mean, when I have an incident going and I need to go and say, okay, so I talked to my database SaaS and then got back this result that went to my service that then talked to this other SaaS that then looped back and then went to this other SaaS, and, and now I need to figure out what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm.
1: I think we've gotten really good at making APIs to get things in, and we haven't gotten very good at getting APIs to get things out. Mm. This is something that we're struggling with at Honeycomb right now, and we're actively working on it, but it's a different skill set. It's sort of a different – you need to understand your customers' needs in a very different way, mm. and there is not nearly – sadly – there's not nearly as much of a clear line to profit in doing it well.
0: <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking about similar space era, uh, things and, and I keep coming to like, yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to build a business around this. Might have to talk somebody big into building a foundation or something and that's not going to happen.
1: But I do think that there is something really, really valuable here. And it's deep value. It's long-term value. It is interoperability value. And so I do think that we will get there. It's just going to be – it's later. You know, you need to, like – you need to have established yourself. You need to not be worrying about survival when you tackle these problems.
0: Mm.
1: Or I think you'll make poor decisions.
0: But, I mean, shifting back to kind of the current state-of-the-art – I mean, that's often how people get in the hole where, you know, struggling trying to achieve a place of feeling confident, yeah, but unable to get there because the tools aren't available. The observability is not there. You know, the infrastructure just isn't evolving because there's no direction.
1: That is true. Now... In terms of like observability and instrumentation, I think that the serverless kids have it right here. I think that like as long as uh, your platform is instrumentable in the way that serverless is, which which is to say they assume no log files, no log lines, no anything except the code that you're writing should be able to report on its status, right, at any point. Mm. And, And that, like when people are asking me like how to instrument in the brave new world, I'm always like think of how serverless does it because I think that those are the right bundle of assumptions and, and, and practices to kind of work towards. And like most things that let you, you know, Amazon functions, et cetera, you can make your software report its status back to you. And, and if you're using something like Honeycomb, which is a sort of pretty agnostic, you can just send events to it from anywhere, mm. knit them together with a trace ID so that you're persisting it, whether it bounces around from system to system, that's fine. As long as you as the provider are persisting those fields and, and allowing people to, to, to do the tracing and to report back out, right. I think that's a pretty achievable bar.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't think the modern serverless is even possible without that, right? Because mm-hmm. they'd just be little black boxes that break all the time and you can't do anything about it.
1: Yeah, but when you're talking about knitting together all of these different platforms, that is a standard that I would feel comfortable holding everyone to.
0: Absolutely. I'm with you on that.
1: Well, I think we've just solved all the world's problems. Thanks for joining us today, Amy. Thanks for coming, Amy. This is delightful. Yeah, it was my pleasure. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollycast.
2: To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.